Our scripture passages for today's sermon are two, the first being Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, and then Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Here now, the reading of God's word. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you now join me in prayer? Father, we ask that as we heard your scriptures being read, we pray now that you would speak to us through your servant in spite of him. And we ask that the words that he speaks would enrich and enliven our hearts because not from his mouth, but because of the mouth of God that speaks through it would cause us to see the truth of your word and that it would convict and compel us to live a life worthy of the call that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. Father, we know that we are unworthy of these matters, but Lord, you have made us worthy through your son And we are so grateful for the opportunity now to sit at your feet for you to speak to us. And so, Lord, speak so that the words that we hear may enliven our hearts and give us hope yet again to be light into this darkened world, salt in a world that has gone so bad and tasteless. Hear us now, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I once heard a pastor tell a story where every now and then he would cross the parking lot of his church and go into the local cemetery nearby. And as he would walk the grounds of the cemetery, he would read the various tombstones of the people buried there. And usually there would be a lot written about the people who have died, something very glowing and positive in terms of the life they live. For example, one tombstone that he read said this, here lies Susan Cramble, faithful wife, devoted mother, beloved teacher of many students. But then every now and then, the pastor would stumble upon a tombstone that would only have a name, the dates in which that person lived, and then a very uncomfortable blank space. No mentioning of any amazing achievements, no cataloging of specific skills, no praises of any considerable contribution, just a very ominous, uncomfortable blank space. And as the pastor went back to his church office and pondered what he saw, he concluded this, there is nothing more sad and more pathetic than a person to live their life in such a way to where nothing could be said about them after they died. Yeah. Because that means such a person, their life was meaningless. It didn't matter. They were unessential, unimportant, unnecessary. And if there's anything that the Bible always implores us not to end up in terms of our life, it's that kind of life. All throughout the pages of Scripture, Scripture, God is telling us, do not squander, do not waste this precious gift known as life by not living a life of meaningful importance. 
You know, Jesus once told us in his word that we are to live our life in such a way that when we die and finally face him on the day of our judgment, we would hear these wonderful, delightful words coming out of his mouth. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come now and enter into the joy of your master. If there's anything that God wants from his people is that we would live a life of importance, that we would understand what is important in life. But of course, that begs the question, how do you pull that off? How could you possibly know what that might be? We're considering, uh, continuing, excuse me, I'm a little off today. We're continuing our sermon series entitled Grow Up, where the whole point of this series is to look at the six characteristics of genuine, maturing Christian faith. And today we land on characteristic number five, which is universal church committed or being committed to God's universal church. Now you hear that very long statement, and you're wondering, what does that even mean? Committed to God's universal church? Well, it turns out that's the answer to the question of today's sermon of how to live a life of importance. You do that by being committed to God's universal church. And as we take a look at our two passages for today, Philippians 3 and Acts 16, we're going to discover that in order to be committed to universal church and hence live a life of importance, you need to be dreaming the proper dreams. Yeah, if you want to be committed to God's universal church and hence live a life of importance, you must be dreaming the appropriate and proper dreams. And to spell what all that means, three things I want to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about the importance of dreams. Then we're going to talk about the dreams we should have. And finally, we're going to end it with how to dream properly. The importance of dreams, the dreams we should have, and how to dream properly. Okay, let's begin with the first point, the importance of dream. If I came up to you and asked this question, hey, what are your dreams? You can interpret that question one of two ways. First, you may think that what I'm asking you is, what do you literally dream of as you're sleeping at night? Something to the effect of, oh, pastor, I dream I'm Spider-Man, and it's my job to rescue a box of cookies on the roof of my mom's apartment from the evil green goblin who happens to be my little brother. Judah's been having some weird dreams lately, right? Or you could have a, a dream like, Pastor, I have this recurring dream where I'm back at the university and the first day of class is the day of the final and I haven't prepared whatsoever. In fact, I don't even know what class I'm in in my dreams. Your dreams could refer to the experience that you have in your brain as you're sleeping the night away in your bed. The second way you can interpret my question is to think that what I'm asking you is, what are your goals? What are your ambitions that you want to live out during your waking hour? So where you could say something like, Pastor, I dream of being a multimillionaire by the time I'm 35. I dream of being married with two kids, a suburban home with a white picket fence and a nice station wagon. Or I dream of traveling all over Europe with my three best friends before my 30th birthday. Your dreams can refer to the ambitious goals that you want to hit in order for you to feel like you've lived life. Now, here's the thing. These two dreams that I just described for you very rarely ever match. They're hardly ever the same. I don't think any adult in here seriously dreams of becoming Spider-Man to rescue a bunch of cookies on the roof of your mom's apartment, right? But every now and then, the dreams that you have while you are sleeping do match the dreams that you have when you are awake, the dreams you chase after. And when they do, many people assume that they have discovered what's really important in life. For example, let's say you have a guy, let's call him Michael, and he dreams of marrying Michelle, a coworker at his job. And when he goes to bed that night, he's actually having dreams, vivid dreams, that he's married to this girl, Michelle. Clearly, these matching dreams are telling him, being married to this girl is very important to my life, and I better make it a priority. You see, life is very hard. 
it's very hard because it's very difficult to figure out what's important to my life. But one of the most ingenious hacks that people have discovered is that if I can identify what my matching dreams are, you know, the dreams that I have at night matches the dreams I chase after when I'm awake, then I have potentially discovered what is important to my life. And notice that I said potential because it is possible that the things that your matching dreams are saying to you is important may actually not be that important at all. Let me give you a silly example. I know there are a lot of people, some in this very room, who love to travel, right? You hear from a coworker, you hear from a friend, a family member of an exotic location you never heard of, but they went to, and they're just raving about how awesome it is, and you start dreaming, right? about what it's going to be like to go there with your significant other, with your families, with your friends. And when you go to bed, you're actually dreaming that you're at this location. But what often happens from what I'm told is that when you get to that location, it never lives up to what you dreamed it would be. You see, one of the things that we discover is that what our matching dreams say is important turns out to not be that important at all, at least not what we thought it would be. And so here's the question. How do we ensure that the things that our matching dreams say are important are actually important. Now, it's with that question posed, we're ready to consider the first passage of today, Philippians chapter 3. But before we look at the words of that text, I want to first consider the writer of that text, and that is the Apostle Paul. For those of you who have attended church your, your whole life or been in Sunday school, you'll recognize that name. Yes, the same Apostle Paul who wrote over half of the New Testament. The same Apostle Paul who is considered the most famous disciple of Jesus Christ. The same Apostle Paul who is considered the greatest missionary and theologian the church ever had. The well-known Apostle Paul. But one thing that many Christians do not know of this well-known person is that for many years of his life, he was deceived by his dreams. Yeah, because a majority of his young adult life, he pursued a dream both in his sleeping hours and during his ambitious waking hours of one thing. I'm going to be the greatest Jewish zealot of all. I am going to be the best. Why? Well, consider what he says in his own words in verses 4 to 6 of Philippians 3. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here is a man who believed he discovered the most important thing in life, and that is he wanted to be the best, best Jewish leader, Jewish disciple, Jewish Pharisee. Why? Because it was in that position that he would have leverage over people to where he would be able to do whatever he wanted, including persecuting innocent people, even killing them in the name of God. You see, Paul was driven by a dream to have power. Power. And if you're honest with yourself and if you submit to what... the Bible teaches that is also true of every human being that walks on this earth, including every person in this room. See, the Bible makes the audacious claim that when it comes to the dreams that we have when we're asleep and the dreams we chase after when we're awake, at its root is a dream to have power. Proof to you by asking you a series of questions. Think about some of your most pleasant dreams that you have when you're sleeping. What makes those dreams so pleasant? What makes them so sweet? 
It's usually because in your dreams, you're experiencing some sort of pleasure, some sort of prosperity, some sort of peace. Three things that are the fruit of what? Having power, right? I remember years ago, I had this very vivid dream that I won the state lotto. And overnight, I was a multimillionaire. And in my dream, I'm literally walking down midtown Manhattan, making it rain to a bunch of strangers on Wall Street. And everyone is, is chanting my name as they're trying to grab my dollar bills. John, John. And I felt so good because I felt so powerful. And then I woke up. <laughs> I felt so pleasantly pleased because of power in my dream. Now let's change the category. Think about some of the dreams that people pursue when they're awake. They dream of marrying a certain kind of person. They dream of driving a certain kind of car. They dream of having a certain kind of job. They dream of owning a certain kind of home. At its root, if you boil down what all those dreams are really pursuing, you'll come to see that it's the dream of power, right? It's the dream of power. The honest truth of the matter is, is that when it comes to the dreams that we want realized in our life, it's the dream for power, making power the most popular matchmaker between our dreams because power, for the eyes of many, is the most important thing that they could have in their life. But consider what the Apostle Paul says about that dream of power once he encountered the one and only person who has real power. This is verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul realized that his dream for power was absolute garbage. It was rubbish. Why? Because he encountered another dream where he discovered something even more important than the dream of power. And it's that dream that he wants you and I to share in. But what is that dream? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the dreams we should have. Let's read again our second passage for today, Acts 16. We're starting in verse 6. We read, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been a forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so here's the situation. Paul is well underway on his second missionary journey. You see, when the... Apostle Paul was transformed by his encounter with God. He discovered what is really important in life. And what is that? Helping others, right? Listen again to what it says in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and what? Help us. Help us. You notice how it says in that verse that Paul had a vision in the night. That's another way of saying that he's sleeping. He's having a vision in his sleep. And what is this dream of vision that he has? A man of Macedonia is asking him for help. Now, when a person asks for help, they could be asking for a wide variety of things. They might be asking for help with regards to their money problems or help with their medical needs or help with moving. I don't know. But when Paul hears this man asking for help, he knows right away what specific thing this man is asking help for. He tells us in verse 10. God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Now think about that for a moment. 
Paul is having a dream of a man asking him to tell him about Jesus while he's fulfilling his dream of telling as many people as possible about Jesus. He's on his second missionary journey for crying out loud, right? In other words, Paul is experiencing matching dreams, right? And it all centers on Jesus. It all centers about telling others about the gospel. What does that tell us? It tells us that as far as Paul is concerned, the most important thing in life, not just in his life, but everyone's life who calls themselves Christian is to tell others about Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says about himself in Acts 20, verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. If you ask the Apostle Paul, what is, in your opinion, Paul, the most important thing in life? He would say without hesitation, I'm too excited right now. Right? Telling others about Jesus. Sharing the gospel. Now, I know many of you guys in the church are going to hear that, and your immediate reaction is going to be like, oh, that's nice for you, Paul. I'm glad you discovered what you find important for your life. Now, why do you emphasize it like that? Because let's be honest. We don't share in his convictions, right? I mean, can we be honest with ourselves for just a moment and confess that Paul's dream of sharing Jesus with others is simply not the kind of dream that we share in our own lives? And if you don't want to admit it, please have enough integrity to not deny it. Because all the research that studies this stuff tells us over and over again that Christians in America, we don't share our faith. We don't share Jesus with the people around us. We don't testify of the gospel of grace. And I know the common excuses because I still make them for myself whenever I'm confronted and you are confronted this way. You might say something like, oh, come on, pastor. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about. He was specifically called and commissioned by God to do this specific work of sharing Jesus with others. How could we mere mortals share in this evangelistic dream of his? But yet I would respond with this. If you can relate to Paul in his dream for power that he once had, why is it not possible for you to share in his dream of sharing the gospel with as many people as possible? If you also found power to be important as Paul once did, why is it not possible for you to also see the gospel as important to you as Paul does now? Why is it that it's easy to relate to Paul in one category, but completely unfathomable in another? And as you consider that, here's something else to consider. If you go back to what I said in my first point, our dreams constantly disappoint us, right? When we actualize them into our lives because our experiences never lives up to the hype of our dreams. Now, Christian, don't you think that tells you and me that maybe we are not the most reliable source in determining what is really important for our life and therefore the dreams that are worth dreaming after and about? Maybe we should consider asking someone who knows us better than we know ourselves, someone who is smarter than us, someone who is much wiser than us. I don't know, maybe the God of the Bible. And as you study his Bible, his word, you stumble upon passages like this, Philipp, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, when it comes to what God says in his word is the most important thing, he would say to all of us, it's telling others about the most important person of all. It's telling others about Jesus. This should be 
the important thing that consumes us to the point we're dreaming about it as we're asleep. We're dreaming after it as we are awake. And yet, here's the solid, bitter truth. That's just not our dreams, is it? Right? When we survey the dreams that we have when we're asleep and the dreams we pursue when we're awake, Jesus is nowhere in sight, let alone in our purview to share him with others. So here's the question. How do we change that? How do we prioritize and make important what God says we should prioritize and make important and therefore dream the proper dreams? Well, the answer leads me to my next point, how to dream properly. One more time, verses 9 through 10 of Acts 16, we read, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want to draw your attention to that individual person he sees in his dream, the man of Macedonia. I find him so fascinating. I find him so incredibly fascinating. Let me tell you why. It's clear that God is telling Paul, look, Paul, I want you to go to the country of Macedonia and tell the whole people there about me, about Jesus, right? Because that's the conclusion that he comes to in verse 10. So with that being the case, why does God communicate that message through the representation of one individual? I mean, if I was God, and thank God that I'm not, I would give Paul a vision dream where he would see the entire country of Macedonia, a beautiful panoramic vision where he could be inspired by the beautiful cities of uh, Philippi and Thessalonica or maybe be inspired by the beautiful water valleys of the Balkan Mountains that Macedonia is known for, something that would move him to want to go there. I mean, back when I was in college, I had a sweet mate my freshman year that I was trying to get to know at the beginning of the year, and I remember being in his room, and over his desk was a beautiful, massive panoramic picture of the city. <coughs> And you know what city I'm talking about. I'm talking about our city, right? New York. And as I was conversing with him, I couldn't get my eyes off of this picture because I was so enamored. I was so enchanted by this magnificent vision I saw. And back then, I made this promise. One day, I'm going to go there. I'm going to check that place out, right? Because I was so moved with inspiration by this vision that I saw. And yet here I am now because of it, right? When God wanted to inspire Paul, he doesn't give a beautiful panoramic vision of Macedonia, but just one individual from Macedonia. Why? What's the point there? The point is this. God is teaching Paul, and he's trying to teach you and me right, about how to dream properly. Let me explain what I mean. You know, when a lot of non-Christians consider why the Christian God wants his people to evangelize as much as possible. Many of them think that it's because our God is some social media freak. Yeah, he just wants to go viral and get as many likes as possible and dominate the world with what he's trying to sell to the world, right? A lot of negative, narcissistic view of our God. And sad to say, many Christians have kind of agreed with that, which explains their hesitation to why they don't want to share with Jesus. They don't want to look a certain way or they don't want their God to look a certain way. But let me tell you why thinking that way is completely ridiculous. Go back to the man of verse 9, the man of Macedonia. <clears throat> By showing Paul this individual person, God is trying to tell Paul the specific message he wants to say as he's preaching the gospel. And that is the message, God loves you. You. And when I say you, I don't mean a group of you, a bunch of you, or all of you, but you as in you, as a singular individual. God loves you. 
Consider what A.W. Tozer once said about the love of God. He said, quote, The love of God is one of the greatest realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests, but it is a personal, intimate thing. God does not love population. He loves a person. He loves not masses, but a man. He loves us all with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no end, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying God loves people uniquely, personally, individually. In other words, God loves people with particular one-of-a-kind love that he does not have for anyone else, you see. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why in the world would the entire heavenly host be celebrating over one person who comes into God's kingdom? Have you ever heard of a business owner being so excited for having one customer enter into a store? Have you ever heard of a celebrity rejoicing over the fact that he has one fan? Has a pastor ever expressed joy because he has one member attending his church? I would because, you know, holy like that, right? That's my point. God loves the individual, which means he loves you as you. Why? Because he sees the individual you as important. More important than power, more important than peace, than pleasure, prosperity, more important than anything that you and I dream about or dream after. God says, you are important to me. And you might be wondering, well, how how important am I, pastor? Well, I heard one pastor say many years ago when I was a student, if you were the only person that lived on this earth, God would still come into the world suffer the extent of suffering that he did, go through the hardships of hardships that he did, and he would still go through the humiliating, grueling death to die on the cross for you. And since you're the only human on earth, that means you're the one who crucified him, right? He would go through all of that. He would go through that same extent just for you. And when you grasp that, that utterly changes you. You know how it changes you? It changes the perspective of what you think is important because when you receive and accept this kind of -of one-of-a-kind love that God has for you, the things that are important to God become immediately important to you, such as other individual people who God has put into your life. You know, it's kind of like what happened to me when I married my wife, Sarah. You know, when my wife married me, she was communicating to me, I'm going to love you in a way that I'm never going to love anyone else, even after I'm gone, right, honey? <laughs> no remarried. No, I'm just joking, right? She is going to love me in a way that no one else will receive from her. And when I grasped that, it changed me. And one practical way it changed me is that what was important to her became important to me like a clean house. Before I married her, I was a slob. I'll admit it. I'll confess. I'm not ashamed because I'm a changed man because of her, you see. When I was a bachelor, I didn't think it was that important to be hygienic and to clean up after myself. But once this amazing, exclusive, holy love was given to me, what was important to her became immediately important to me. And now I clean up even after her sometimes. That's usually the other way around, but sometimes I do. The same thing happens when you have encountered and experienced God's love for you, not you as part of NCF, not you as part of Christianity, but you, Heather, Esther, Jean, John, Mike, Mark, I'm just Luke, Jason, you know what I'm saying, Nina, 
Doug. No, I'm, I'm going to stop. You guys get that? And when you do, that's how you start prioritizing what God prioritizes. Then you start experiencing what God says is important to him. And pretty soon your dreams start changing to where you start dreaming properly and you start telling others about Jesus Christ. If you want to be the kind of person that God says is a life of meaningfulness, where he would say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, it begins with you first grasping of how deep and how wide, how amazing God's love is for you. Have you experienced that love? My hope and prayer is that it does begin now if it hasn't already. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That really is objectively the most important thing that we have received. We have received eternal life, and yet so often we take it for granted, evidenced by the fact that we don't even have dreams that are related to the gospel of sharing you, the most important person of all, because we don't see sharing you with others as the most important thing. Father, forgive us. Lord, help us to change and let it begin with us grasping of the amazing, unique, holy love you have for us, a love that is set apart so that we can come together as a community and collectively work of sharing this gospel to the people that you have brought into our lives. Father, as we think about this message, I pray that we will think about individual names of people that we know and that we would consider praying for them and being present in their lives so that we can show them the person who is the most important person of their life. God, we ask that you would help us to be a community that does not withhold and greedily keep our greatest treasure to ourselves, but we would share it freely to those around us. Let us be a church that is committed to your universal church by seeking to expand it even more by sharing the love of God in Jesus Christ to the individuals that you have placed into our lives. Help us to live out that call we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering to revisit.